Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner. I am back. I am here with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer, who has also returned from his weekend of work. Michael, how have you been? I have been very well. I'm delighted to be back in the fine, fresh air of Ireland after our long and arduous experience working very hard for the people. In the 30 degree heat by the ocean. (laughs) <laughs> I think it was 31 and 32 at times on the first day, but after that it cooled down to a balmy 29. I don't know about you, Michael, but I received many emails while I was away uh, saying that people were sorry to see me go. Most of those were because I foolishly said in the interview that went up over the last weekend that we were recording it early and that I hoped no new news happened. <laughs> yeah. So people seemed to take great joy in informing me that the mercenary army of Wagner appeared to have turned on Putin and there was some sort of Russian coup going on. It was a bit of a worry for a while that we were going to be away while they replayed the uh, October Revolution of 1917 all over again that Wagner were going to push on to Moscow and we would be away talking about tourism and the problems created by sustainability for European tourism which would have been something of it but Mr. Prigozhin decided instead to go off on his holidays to Belarusia. Oh sorry this is nothing to do with anything but I don't know did you see uh, the 28 year old vice president of a Russian bank fell out of her apartment window in Moscow. I did, and I think it explains why defenestration is so popular as a method of assassination in that region of the world, because so many people just accidentally fall out of windows anyway. I do not recall in my life to now, in any of the countries that I've lived in or had friends, that ever happening. You know, and yet in, in Moscow, it, it, they must have either very big windows with no ledges at all, no balconies, and probably a large consumption of vodka during the day, because otherwise it's very hard to explain how all of this is going on. Michael, can you imagine the reductions in house insurance you must get in Moscow if you put like a window lock in? Yeah, absolutely. It's a bit like, you know, if you put an extra three or four smoke alarms and you have your... Uh, uh, you know, telephone connected to the Garda station, anti-burglar device. You you can get really significant production. I think in, in Moscow, possibly if you put a terrace outside, that would help as well. And maybe like a night, like a six foot, maybe not six foot, because you wouldn't see much over it, but maybe a five foot wall. There are lots of things they could do, but apparently they're not doing. Even, obviously, people who are doing quite well. I mean, she was doing very well, 28 years old, and she was vice president of a bank. And it's tragic that it seems to, it seems to be a particular risk for those in the upper echelons of Russian society, perhaps because they tend to live higher, whereas lower class Russians perhaps drunkenly fall through windows at about the same pace, but there's less of a fall. So, you know, they just dust themselves off, whereas the upper class seem to, like, they hit the pavement hard. You see, in ancient Rome, it would have been different because in ancient Rome, the higher you went up in the building, the cheaper the rent was. Because the concern in the ancient Roman suburbia was that if there was a fire and you were living on the ninth floor, then you were, shall we say, both literally and figuratively toast. So the people who lived on the first floor, second floor, tended to pay less. And in, to this day, what we would call the first floor in most Italian palazzi is called the Piano Nobile. Um, although most people don't like to live there anymore because that's where the burglars can still climb up. And the smell of sewage. Well, not if it rains. Anyway, you wouldn't call it a failed coup. The damp squib. But you know what, Gary? It's a damp squib that may fizzle yet. Do you have any further metaphors about that that you could continue to say? The dominoes will continue to fall, something like that. I think the dominoes are not falling, but the dominoes are 
swaying in the wind. He has created a breeze of dissent and uncertainty. And before you know it, the pawns will topple and then checkmate. Or at least checkers. <laughs> Somebody's going to get huffed. Oh, that's what I know. Somebody's definitely going to get huffed. But to, to move on, Michael, from my incredible youthfulness and vitality, yeah. uh, which many people comment on, to actual news... I, during the week, published a story on the government's vacant property grant system. Now, for those who are not aware, the government in July of last year launched this program. They said it was one of their key initiatives to bring, uh, to increase the level of housing stock in Ireland. And what it is, is it is a grant, which you can, you can go to your local authority and you can apply for it if you are doing up a house that is vacant, as in no one has lived in it for, I think, two years. Or derelict, which is basically where the house has some structural element which renders it unsafe. You can go to the local authority and you can claim 50000 to do up a vacant uh, property or 70000 to do up a derelict property. Large amount of money, very helpful if you're doing up these kind of houses. And the government has been coming out and singing its praises for pretty much the entirety of that time, saying that, you know, hundreds of people had applied for it, that it was incredibly uh, popular, and so on and so on. However, I ran into a little bit of information that made me curious about this little, uh, this particular uh, aspect of it. How many of those people were actually getting the money? Because it turns out, Michael, there's a difference between being accepted for a grant and actually receiving the grant. So, 1,500 people apply for the grant. About 500 people get it. 450 to 500, I think. In 11 months of the operation of the grant, Michael, would you like to guess how many actually got the money? So you're saying 1,500 applied? Mm-hmm. Which, to be honest with you, doesn't sound like... A massive number. I mean, for something which, when I it was rolled out initially, sounded like it was going to be a central plank to the policy of trying to you know solve the problem of housing in Ireland. Fifteen hundred people doesn't sound like a great number, but well, I I might have an explanation for that as well. So five hundred, four fifty to five hundred got the grant. Um, there's going to be a time lag. We'll say we'll split it. So two fifty. One. One, as in one person. One lad in Mayo. <laughs> I don't know why, but one lad in Mayo just sounds like the line from a, line from a play. Yeah, it's quite nice. They broke it down by constituency. So you just go through it and it's just zero, 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 one. But the obvious question then, Gary, is what was so special about Aladdin Mayo? Why did, why why was he to be blessed? I rang, I rang around about this to see if it was... Because I, I'd guessed the reason, but I wanted to be sure. The lad in Mayo who applied for it didn't have a mortgage. He was paying for both the property and the renovations in cash. So there was no bank involvement. Good man, lad in Mayo. Oh, yeah. Just some, some of these lads are doing well for themselves. Yeah. And I am sure, Michael, it's a lovely house now. However, I, this is the, the problem I found when I looked into it. The grant, when they brought it in, has what's called a clawback provision, which basically says if we give you this money to do up your house and you move out within 10 years you have to pay us between 50 and 100% of the grant back, depending on when you move out. Now, that's all fine and dandy, Michael. You do that to make sure that, you know, people can't flip houses and you put in a load of other protections for that. And, you know, it is what it is. The problem, 
and this is why people haven't been able to get the money as far as I can see, is Irish banks, Michael. It turns out that Irish banks don't like the idea that, you know, if a house is valued at 300,000 and they give someone 300,000 to get the house and do the renovations, that would put it at the 300,000 or 330 valuation, somewhere like that, that then there could be an additional 70 grand potential charge on top of that because that would then mean more money is owed on the house than it's actually valued at, which banks, not being charities and quite liking to get their money back to the extent allowable in Ireland, had a bit of an issue with. So banks were telling people that if you draw down a mortgage from us to buy the house and to fund the renovations, you cannot take the grant. So they designed it. A program to help with the housing crisis, which would only be available to those people who had the cash money to buy the property and to do it up and wouldn't have to go to the banks to look for a mortgage. I'm I, I, nothing against the Latin Mayo, Gary, but it seems to me but the, that the Latin Mayo isn't the guy that you're supposed to be trying to prioritize to help to get a house if he has the cash. Well, I, again, as I say, nothing against it. I'm sure he's Lovely land. But if you can't get a mortgage to do it, surely does that just automatically rule out the vast majority of people? Just off the bat, just bang, gone. Yeah, it does. And this is the other point where you're saying only 1,500 people applied for it. I talked to people who had mentioned they were interested in the grant to banks and the banks had said, well, you, you can't draw it down. So the people just hadn't applied for it. And I mean, that might only be a small amount of people. That might be a large amount of people. But it seems that people were being told that you can't get it and deciding, well, there's no point applying for it if I can't get it. Uh, also, the grant is paid back after the works finish. So there was already a, um, you know, this, this was not something upfront that you could use to fund it. You still needed to be able to fund it. And I think it was the way it was designed was that, you know, you'd get the mortgage and it was basically something that you could get back uh, to pay off a percentage of your mortgage early. That was basically how it seemed to be designed. But no one thought to ask the banks what they thought about it or if the banks might have any issue with it. And to be honest, Michael, I can I can perfectly understand the bank's position. That makes sense to me. A house should not have more money against it than it is worth. That's a problem. Uh-huh. That is... Well, it just means that this much-trumpeted plan is basically useless. Well, what they've done, or what I'm told they've done, is I'm told that they have reached an agreement with the banks. Now, there was a long, drawn-out negotiation process, which, of course, concluded just before I published the story on it, which was, in and of itself, deeply irritating, because this thing has been going on for 11 months. The government has now said that... Anyone who takes the money, it will be considered a second charge on the house, so the mortgage will always take primacy. Uh, primacy. The problem there, Michael, is i.e. the Banking Federation of Ireland and Payments Federation of Ireland are telling me the issue is fixed. The Department of Housing are telling me the issue is fixed. When I talked to some of the people in the banking sector, they were of the opinion that it might be fixed. It could also be months before things start working appropriately. And that even when things start working appropriately, Banks may have issues with certain vacant properties taking on a charge like this. Yeah. So we, we will see where it goes. At the very best, assuming it's fixed now, there's no issues, and everyone who wants it is now going to be able to go for it. What we still have is a situation in which something the government themselves said was a key initiative of their housing platform, an area which appears to be important to them politically, 
was totally non-operational for 11 months and no one noticed. No one noticed in the media. The ministers in the Department of Housing, those people were all coming out and saying, you know, it's very popular. Just not mentioning, although they had to have known that no one was actually able to get their money. And it just, 11 months of, um, just didn't work. Yeah. Which strikes me as, um, not a great display of, you know, skill, political or legislative skill. Like, you think if you're going to put in a grant for building, you maybe make sure that it's not going to piss off every bank in the country to the extent that they refuse to allow it. That seems like a pretty basic task. You think you, you, go, you go to the central bank, you go to the banks, and you talk to them, and you say, listen, we want to do this. Are you going, are you going to give us a dig out, lads? And if they won't give you a dig out, then maybe you, you reframe the, the program. But you do something. You either you, you get the banks to change or you change. But if you, otherwise, it, all it is is just an, a yet another piece of performance art produced by the government. The, the one that actually legitimately did kind of annoy me is, I can't remember, it was one of the ministers of state coming out and talking about how the program was so popular <laughs> and saying, you know, how many people have been accepted at a time when he had to have known that no one was actually getting their money. And there's, there is a cost in this, Michael. Like, you have to get costings to apply for the grant. You have to do certain, um, you'd probably have to get a surveyor in. Now, ideally, you're going to be doing those things anyway. But you have people who are going into what is probably going to be the largest expenditure of cash they're ever going to do in their lives, banking on being able to get a grant, the government coming out and telling them it's a very popular grant, and not bothering to mention it is not working. I mean, you had um, houses are being sold, which openly state that they are, you know, able to get these grants and have been since the grant came in. And no one bothered to tell the public, you know, you're going to get so far and realize actually you don't have that 50,000 that you budgeted in, which is just kind of slimy. Yeah, it's it's deeply dishonest. I mean, at, at the best, you can say it's deeply dishonest. I would also point out that I published it during the week. I figured it was one of those stories where you might see someone else pick it up or ask a minister. But they're kind of non-sexy stories that are important because, well, frankly, something should be done about it. But I haven't seen anyone pick it up. No one else seems interested in it. The majority of the country is just never going to hear that this happened and may still be happening. So this is going to continue potentially negatively impacting on the public because no one seems to be bothering to chase it up. So I don't think anyone is coming out of this looking good, apart from Gripped, of course, who, as always when I'm involved, looks fantastic. (laughs) Yeah, thank you for that. They say self-praise is no praise, but I I still like to, you know, go through the motions. It's like I always say to you, Gary, you know, hero's not a word I like to use, but, you know, if other people want to use it, I'm happy. We don't normally do much foreign news here, unless it's unless we're away for the weekend and so a coup happens in Russia, and then we don't do the foreign news by accident. There were two cases: one very big, well-covered case in the Supreme Court in the United States, which are interesting in and of themselves, I think, but also because maybe some lessons we could learn. We won't learn, Gary, but we could learn from them. The first is. The end of what well, it's been called the end of affirmative action in a higher level of edu- education in the United States. Really, what it is is the it's the end of uh, shall we say simple racial preference ordering for acceptance into uh, universities. The case was specifically involved Harvard, but what was in I, there were a lot of things I found interesting. First of all, it was just the incoherence of the the idea. 
It's been going around since the 60s, the idea of using some kind of affirmative action or racial preferencing in the in universities in the United States. Um, certain places, I, for example, California actually, as a, as a state, introduced legislation some years ago explicitly saying you could not use race as a factor in deciding who would be assigned a place or not. But one of the things that started really to motivate the, the move towards change was actually really egregious example of race, racial discrimination. I, I, I don't know if you've seen any of the, the numbers, Gary, but regarding the performance of what are called Asian students in the United States. I always think this is, I say that what are called Asian students because it strikes me as a, a rather odd form of nomenclature because Asia starts in Turkey. And end somewhere over in Alaska. Just well, don't tell the Turkish that. I mean, you'd be as well to say they're Arabs. Like you just no, 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 no. It would not be as well to say they're Arabs. Definitely not. That's that's just a hint for any listener of this podcast. If you find yourself in Turkey, Persian, Turkish, fine. Arab, no, no, will not go down well. Part of Istanbul is in Europe. Part of Turkey is in Europe. But a lot of is of Turkey, most of Turkey is in uh, is in Asia, and that's why it used to be called Asia Minor. Anyway, when we talk about Asia, most people, they, they tend to be talking about people from what, what would be sort of the Indian subcontinent, um, people who are ethnically Chinese, Koreans, Japanese. Okay, Gary hasn't been asked this before, and he won't get this right, and he'll hate me for doing this, so I'll do it anyway. What ethnic group do you think has the highest per capita performance in attaining PhDs in the United States? Nigerians. Filipinos. Really? Yeah. Filipinos also do very well on income levels as well. Highest level of PhDs. Filipinos. Anyway, Hmm. if you look at the numbers, for example, of people uh, achieving the highest scores in SATs in mathematics which is like scoring 700 in mathematics in the, in the SATs, which is the standard standardized testing for admission to universities in the United States. Disproportionately, I mean massively disproportionately high number of those people achieving that 700 figure will be from an ethnic group which would be described as Asian. But Asians are very significantly underrepresented, according to the results, in Ivy League universities. Well, this is not a new uh, situation for the Ivy Leagues. There was, you know, in the <clears throat> in the early 20th century, the Ivy Leagues put in place certain measure to keep out a different uh, yes. group, Michael, <laughs> Jews. Yeah, yeah. Just didn't want a lot of Jews in the Ivy Leagues. Eventually, that became a bit of a problem for them. And now they've decided it's, um, it's Asians. And it's, I mean, it is, it's exceptionally interesting when you see some of the examples of, because America has a standardized uh, testing system, the SAT, and you can compare the SAT of an Asian student who was rejected from Harvard, let's say a black or Hispanic student who was accepted, and you are talking about, it's graded, um, I think 1500, 1600, you can be talking about hundreds of points in the difference things that could not be accepted. And Harvard's defense was basically, if I could sum it up, Michael, Asians are just boring people. That was, yeah, that was basically it. They claimed they were actually not using the SATs, but they were using these interview-based uh, uh, approach, which was and personality 
And they basically were saying, Asians, you know, not a great personality. Not a good fit for us, you know. They, I, they wouldn't be really, they're not kind of Harvard people. They're more maybe MIT people, maybe Caltech kind of people. They're not really Harvard people. We, we like more fun people. They're not fun, the Asians. Just not fun. And they used to say these kind of, I mean, exactly the same things. Well, not exactly, but similar things. Uh, Einstein was in Princeton, which is, a, 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 I have a vague memory of something that was Einstein, the first first Jewish guy to get tenure at Princeton or something. There, there was a very interesting article written, which I think was entitled, When, the, when Jews Became White. And I think they usually date it from the 1950s. Jews became white in the 1950s. I mean, that's when all of the official blocks, shall we say, roadblocks to get into the higher elite institutions were removed. And the concern had been in the 30s was, well, if we let them all in, there'll just be so many Jews. The place will be just rife with Jews. And you hear that kind of language now. All these people will come in. It's been framed, obviously, on the left, Gary. You won't be surprised as this is a terror. This is actually about privilege, and it's because it's giving a leg up to historically disadvantaged groups, and because it's not benefiting white males in America, they had to get rid of it. The problem is that if you actually do analysis of this kind of thing, I mean, Thomas Sowell has talked about this. That increasingly, what you're actually seeing is not these are not these places in these universities are not going to poor black kids from the ghetto or from the projects. They're going to the sons and daughters of architects and engineers, of politicians and lawyers, dentists and doctors, people who have, are impeccably upper middle class, but get that extra boost to get into these into, in, elite institutions because of these racial programs. Are you aware of the mismatch theory? I am, Michael. Yeah. There was, uh, for listeners, there was a, there's a, a, a legal academic case, professor of law at the UCLA School of Law called Richard Sander, who developed what was called the mismatch theory. Thomas Sowell has talked about this and has done research on it as well, if you want to read up on it. Now, it's not, I, would, I think it's very important to say, Gary, it's not undisputed. It had, it had, the results have been contested. But Sol has looked at the numbers, and I, I'm, I usually I trust Sol on numbers. And his argument is that one of the problems that you create is, but you you can take a take a bright kid of any race, but you take a, a bright kid, but not a super bright kid, but also maybe even if he's super bright, not with the level of basic preparation, because while he's gifted or she is gifted. They don't have the same level of preparation that you're going to get in the best schools, the best prep schools, private schools in New York, the elite science schools, say, that you're getting from a a below average public school in Baltimore. And you put somebody into these elite classes. Now, it seems to be just true, and this is not just the United States, that people who go in and end up in the top, the bottom 15 or 10 percent decile in any class are far more likely to drop out. But you could take that kid and not send him to Harvard or to, to to Yale or wherever, but send him to a decent school, a good school, maybe a state school. But if, I mean, there are lots of very, very good universities in the United States where he where his ability is more matched, his preparation is more matched to those people around him. That person is far more likely to, to finish and to graduate. And Sowell's argument is that what you're actually seeing 
is an excessive level of loss of gifted minority ethnic students because they're failing. They're, and they're being put in a position where they're going to fail. They're going to be, they're putting them in a position where they're, they are more likely than they should be to end up dropping out of college altogether and never graduating. And that stymies this desire to create, or not, not to create, because there is a very significant black middle class in the United States. I think that we, well, in the United States and from our perception abroad, we, we obsess too much about the idea that the United States, if you're an ethnic minority there, you must be, everybody's living in these terrible conditions. Just simply not true. There are very many very successful uh, black African-Americans who are doing very well. But if you want to, keep that process, that upward mobility going, then don't put kids in a position where they're less likely to succeed. I think there's, there's value to that. But on principle, this is racial discrimination just seen from the other side. And the question is, does it work? Even, and if, you, if you say, okay, we're, allowed, we're going to allow a certain amount of that because of historical in, uh, injustices. We're now two generations in. And to the extent that it's working, it's not working for the people that they like to say it's working for, I suppose, would be the, the central point. But what I found most interesting about all, did you, I don't know, do you have a chance to read any of the commentary from the court itself? Because there were obviously, there were, the court decided 6-3, I think. The Conservatives on one side and, shall we say, the Progressives on, on the other. And there were, the language of the Progressive Justices there was one section where they were saying, well, this is all very well, but this isn't dealing with the real world. This is just dealing with the law. I thought that was a remarkable thing for a justice in the highest court in the United States, the constitutional court, to say, well, that's all very well, but you're just dealing with the law. You're not dealing with the real What else have you got to deal with except the law? Isn't that what we want judges to deal with? I, I read uh, Jackson's dissent, uh, Justice Jackson's dissent, and even very good judges, particularly uh, speaking of Supreme Court judges in America, there's always a um, temptation to go for things that agree with your politics. Even uh, Scalia, who I would have quite a lot of respect for based on his, his jurisprudence. Sure. Occasionally, there's a couple of like decisions where you read and you're like, now really, Antonin, does that does that really kind of, or are you, you know, are you twisting things a little bit to get what you want? Yes. But this, it seems in the last few decisions I've read from the court that the uh, progressive judges, the liberal judges have basically given up on any sort of, we're going to do this purely by the law. There is a vast willingness to talk about the actual social impacts or the governance impacts in a way that I don't think fits appropriately with the actual role of the Supreme Court. Um, it's considering things it absolutely should not consider. It's considering law as a tool of social justice, as opposed to the point that you are there to adjudicate the correctness of the law in line with constitutional requirements and, and other uh, concerns. And if the law is not driving social justice, that's a matter for the legislative. That's yeah. not a matter for the courts. But it seems now that it is going a very particular way. Uh, I mean, it was good to see this taken down because anytime I hear Americans talk about systemic racism, this is the one uncontrovertible example of systemic racism 
I am aware of in America, where there's no dancing around it. This was a racist system. Now, progressives could say it was a racist system, which was positive, but they don't tend to like to make those arguments, even though that is exactly what's happening. And it's good to see it go. However, there are uh, certain loopholes left. The court said that certain things could still be considered. Harvard came out with a statement, which I thought was wonderful in that they had just lost the Supreme Court case. The statement does not apologize for what is clearly a extended period of time of systemic discrimination against Asian, uh, against Asian applicants, but rather simply says, oh, well, the court said we could still consider this, so this is what we're going to do. And there is no, no concern that they have been found to be doing this, to have been systemically, racially discriminating against applicants. But maybe, Michael, I'm just, I'm just old-fashioned. Well, I think you are. I mean, I think we, we, we all know that. There's, there was another case, which I just want to briefly mention because it just, I, I, I got a slight, uh, I got a smile out of it. There was a case where a, a web designer had refused to make same-sex wedding sites, websites, for some people. And it ended up in the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled in her favour. Now, it was uh, one, the uh, it was reported in the journal, Gary. The headline is: U.S.C. Supreme Court backs website designer who refused to serve same-sex couple. Uh, Michael, I think, you know, if I was a pettier man, I might say that that's a headline ripe for a good old-fashioned fact-checking. You think? If if only we knew a fact-checker, that would be great, wouldn't it? Now, the National Review, the uh, conservative uh, outlet in the United States, is that Supreme Court rules in favour of designer who refuses to make same-sex wedding websites. It was actually... And the thing about this that was tedious, Gary, was... The three justices who disagreed all said the same. Basically, said the same thing, which was that she she wouldn't she would she wouldn't serve gay people. Right now, on the face of it, on equal protection clause in the U.S. In the US Constitution, and it would be the same here. Uh, you wouldn't be allowed to do that. You're not allowed to refuse people because they are gay, or because they're straight, or because they're Hopi Indians, or because they're Baptists. No, but this is exactly what we've seen here in relation, or well, no, in Ireland, really, in relation to the design of cakes. And it's a very important distinction that, that people and media have generally not made. Both the web designer and the people who made these cakes have not refused to serve people who are gay or lesbian or transgender. They have accepted that they will provide services to them. What they have said they will not do is provide services as in create material that they disagree with. So the web designer said they won't publish anything that deals with gay marriage because they don't believe that gay marriage is moral, but they are willing to work with gay people. The cake designers are willing to bake gay people a cake. They just won't bake a cake that says something about gay rights because they don't believe in that and they have a right to their own speech. Yeah, and uh, and the thing that uh, the, was tedious, particularly tedious about this, well, it 
in the uh, the the briefs from the lawyers opposing her, they conceded that she would serve gay people. That was conceded. They did not allege that she was refusing to do work for gay people. That was not. But that was what was iterated and reiterated in the opinions that were given. And then around the case. She also says, for example, she won't make websites that promote violence or are sexually explicit. There are other things she won't do. This is, it, I suppose I'm, I'm interested in this in the sense that the, it, it, this is going to be increasingly a problem because there is, an, there is an inherent tension which is going to be greater and greater in any kind of liberal society when you have this clash of freedoms now that's all we've we've always known about this is not a new idea but it seems to be becoming more and more explicit as we have this weird sense where at one moment as a society we say the absolute autonomy of the individual to define themselves and to be the person that they desire to be and nobody can infringe upon that and yet at the same time there seems to be a, a desire to say that we as a society can take individuals who are essentially just asserting their their own autonomy to be the person they want to be living the life they want to live and say to them no you can't live that life because we find that life disreputable unacceptable now i'm not saying that these things are always going to be straightforward or easy I'm not even saying that you would look at this person and say, well, you know what, you know, you should do that. That's not my point. I'm not saying that I agree or disagree with this person, but rather we should recognize that if we're going to live in what we, liberal democracies, that it's, there is going to, there's always going to be this tension between the things that have been, that once upon a time were not, but now are increasingly regarded as being societal norms. And that there are going to be individuals within that. And, you can't really claim to be a free or liberal society if you're going to coerce those people into doing things. Or And you say, well, they don't have to do this. She doesn't have to be a web designer. She doesn't have to be a cake maker. Well, yeah, but that's that's essentially coercion, isn't it? You're going to say, well, yeah, you, you, you don't have to do it, but you just can't do that job. And then you're going to just have to find a job that you, you can do that nobody's going to make you do something that you don't want to do. I Did you see... Uh... Sotomayor's uh, dissent. I did. For those who don't know, Sonia Sotomayor is obviously one of the Supreme Court Justices of America. She is, um, I would say, Michael, generously the least bright of the justices, the least concise, and just generally the least good of the justices. Are you talking about in this case or, or the affirmative action case? In, in this case, particularly. So she said that it was a backlash to the movement uh, for for equality, for gender and sexual minorities, and that allowing her to do this makes a mockery of the law. She said it was, and Michael, this is a type of language that I don't think a judge should ever use. She said it was heartbreaking. And again, I would say, who gives a fuck if the law is heartbreaking? That's not your job. Your job is to decide if it's lawful. It doesn't matter if it's heartbreaking or heartwarming or heart anything. It's also, it seems to me, to be weird and incoherent for someone who would style themselves a 
in the liberal, shall we say, tradition, to be arguing for what is essentially course of of speech, if you like, course of action, that we're going to say, no, you can't make that choice. We're going to make you do this. And you know what, Gary, let's be absolutely, I mean, we conservatives any conservative who's read a book will know that once upon a time when conservatives ran the ran the gaff when it was conservatives who were the censors they were very happy to censor and they were very happy to make people sign for example loyalty pledges in the united states back in the days of joe mccarthy sign your loyalty pledge affirm your loyalty to the united states salute the flag do all those things you know what wasn't a great idea then it's not a great idea now a little bit of respect, a little bit of, a little bit, if you don't, you don't have to like things or people to tolerate them. Because in the cliche, that awful cliche, but terrible truth, you know, it's, it's their freedom today, but it will be your freedom tomorrow. And the thing about rights is if we all don't have them, then nobody has them. There was actually one thing that was particularly interesting about the, the uh, web designer case that has not really been noted upon uh, by many, but I think it's worth mentioning. Yeah. We've seen a, a series of these cases in uh, the UK, um, across Europe, in America. And what has generally happened is that an LGBT charity or activist group has specifically targeted yes. a organization that they know will refuse them. And they have targeted them in such a way to give them the strongest legal grounds possible to then bring this to the courts and basically, as Michael said, impose what is effectively a form of coercive speech. Although I would say that they would say that this is you know, not coercive, Michael. People, it is uh, governing by consent. Huh. Interesting about this case, however, is that's not what happened here. This web designer worked on the basis that she might be sued and instead sued the state first. Oh. And that was always the interesting thing about this. One, that that had happened. And two, would they be allowed standing? Because, you know, this was entirely hypothetical. They had actually not been penalized at all. But it was accepted. It got all the way to Supreme Court. And I think partly because of that, because this was not something where basically it was, you know, an artificial construct that could be created to be beaten down, seems to have done quite well. So perhaps there is something there, Michael. The polls, Michael. Actually interesting polls for once. On two topics, on RTE, which I'm not sure how interested people actually are, and in actual political polls. We have the Sunday Independent polls. Interesting thing here, they show... The same downward movement of Fine Gael that we have seen in previous polls. They don't show the downward movement of Sinn Féin that we saw in the other polls. But it does mean that Fine Gael are now on 19 in the Sunday Times poll. Fine Fáil are on 19 in the Sunday Times poll. I think the Greens are on like 2, 3? Uh, Greens and Ain 2 are on 3. Which is good news for Ain 2, bad news for the Greens. 2 is the Labour Party. So, uh, TD in Wexford. That's my money. My money is on that. If you want to get a sneaky fiver on these days, no, you should, by the way, never, ever use this podcast as a source of financial advice. But, permit, allowing for that, I, I think you could have a sneaky fiver that Labour will have one TD in the ne- after the next general election and that TD will be in Wexford. Uh, independents are up 
uh, one. Uh, Shinners are down, but only down one, so they're down to 31. So that's the... I'm not sure in this one. Is that the first time Fine Gael have been tied with Fianna Fáil on this one? I just feel like there's so many polls now. I'm not sure what the historical lowest point of Fine Gael is on the Sunday time, or on the Sunday independent polls. But it's not good. You've got the entire government together looking at, what, 41% support? Uh, as we're getting into an election, or we're moving towards when there will be an election. It, it's not great, but I don't think it's... I don't think it's unexpected. I don't think it's ununderstandable. No. I mean, we've got the government. I can't remember the last time they did something that was even, not even popular, but just competently achieved. Yeah, well, let's not aim too high. Competently spun. I mean, all they've got at the minute is the Minister for Justice doing rounds of interviews about how sexism is bad and, uh, you know, how dare people say negative things about her taking maternity leave. Yeah, but, but Gary, not, not to her face. They're not saying it to her face. I don't know what they're saying it to. And I don't know how she knows they're saying it, but she does, and they're not saying it to her face, but they're saying it. I mean, you have articles being run about uh, how Dublin is incredibly violent, how control has been lost. You have videos of lads with machetes You've just this endless cycle of danger and crime in the capital city. And then you've got this lovely photo of the Minister for Justice saying sexism is bad. And I'm just not sure that plays terribly well with voters. I mean, we saw McEntee last week come out to write an article saying, you know, the hate crime bill was going to be fine and people were overblowing it. And they placed it in the Times a British newspaper, which has an Irish section once a week, yeah, and was behind a paywall. Now, just to, you know, someone who does work in media, if, if you are trying to convince the public of something in your country, it is usually good to put that, you know, in a newspaper which is read by people in that country. Now, I don't know what the Times Irish subscriptions are, but they were low enough to have multiple editors sacked or chased off, or gone. So, kind of a weird PR offensive from the government. And a, a gutting of writing staff. It's also, uh, there are two things that people have been talking to me a, a lot about. I mean, the subject of crime and the breakdown in society, that's a kind of a perennial issue. You never know how much of it is generated, sometimes by media, sometimes by just a an incident which catches people's imagination and it becomes a focal point for concern and anxiety. It just seems to be a fact. A, a lot of people, very different people have been saying to me that they, one of the things that you find if you're going part, through significant parts of the centre of the city these days is that it smells. It just stinks of human waste. And you know what? If you're a global city, and Dublin is supposed to be a tier two global city, and it's the capital of the country. You, that's not nice, Gary. It's just not nice. There seems to be a, 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 a I don't know, it's a, a lack of visible police or something. I don't know. But then there's this horrible, horrible case of this Ukrainian actor who's been attacked, savagely attacked by this weird, feral bunch of people who seem to want to rob his cigarettes. He ends up being slashed and bitten and whatever. And we know just from ourselves 
that what even whatever about Irish people getting their heads beaten up, going home after an, uh, a night out at half past three in the morning by somebody. When a foreigner gets attacked, we really get embarrassed. We find this very uncomfortable that people outside the country might hear about this and might think badly of us. We don't like this. And several people, not just people on the far right like you, were saying, you know what? If this person was had been shouted at because of some in, and was a member of a protected class, they, they actually might give the appearance of caring a little bit more. But there's a, a, a phrase was used which was roundly condemned by a small coterie of people on the progressive left describing feral gangs or gangs of feral youth. I don't know how common it is, but I know I've ha- I've met enough people who've had experiences direct or tangential of this to make me think that I don't want to to go to these places at night. I I'm gonna I'm gonna stick at my side of Stevens Green if I'm in Dublin at all, and there's a problem and it's not being dealt with. Why? We know that there is a problem with the guards in the sense that there's a problem with recruitment. There's a problem with retention and. When you have you been, I don't know if you've been talking to any guards. I've been talking to a few that I meet socially, who will say to you in fairly muted way and kind of looking around if they're checking, see if that he was listening. But the decision to prosecute the guard for pursuing the individuals that ended up involved in the road traffic, fatal road traffic accident, driving the wrong way up the motorway, has really affected a lot of the the ordinary guards shall we say on the street or in the in 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 the squad car and say well what message is that sent do we pursue these people is it not better just well yeah well maybe we won't do that what where where are we supposed to go what are we supposed to do and then the sense that they want to be involved in protecting people they want to be pursuing genuine crime serious crime and they're seeing the hate crime bill coming down the line and they're looking at the language and they know the kind of people they've been dealing with up to now. And two chaps said to me, they can just see themselves being swamped by an ocean of nonsense that's going to stop them doing the job they want to do. And that's going to lead people to resent them because they're not doing the job they should be doing. Ordinary people who have who suffer burglaries or car thefts or whatever are not going to get the service that they should be getting. And they're going to resent the guards because of that, you know, they, there's 24 hours in the day. There's X number of guards in the in the station. There's only so much they can do, and if they create this amount, a massive amount of stupid busy work with this new legislation, that's going to have a knock-on effect on their capacity to do the job that they want to do. Yeah, I mean, we know that retention amongst the guards has been going down for a while. Recruitment has become increasingly difficult. Weird things have happened, like the um, guard the reserve program. That seems to have kind of fallen apart yeah and and people are giving different reasons why that happened but it you're kind of seeing it's not as bad you're kind of seeing what you saw with the defense forces but the guards are kind of you know years behind where the defense forces have gotten to now where you talk to people in the defense forces and they are just they're done <laughs> it's a shambles they know it's a shambles they're very poorly paid they feel they aren't respected because they don't seem to be respected. So you can't really fault them on that. And things just seem to have fallen apart. Now you talk to some of them, they say it's because of it's because of policy. It's because of how certain officers were appointed. It's because of this and that. I don't know enough about it to say if it's any one thing or if it's multiple things. 
but you're starting to see a similar tone in some of the guards I've talked to. But as I said, it's, it's nowhere near as bad and it can hopefully be stopped. But it doesn't seem to be going in a good direction. And the, the priorities of the head of the four of the police forces seem to be quite odd. Like stuff like the, the transgender policy that they were hoping to bring in. It seems like a weird area to focus on when you've got so many problems that don't seem to be being worked on. Well, didn't we talk about another thing we on another occasion the fact that there were more people involved as diversity officers than were involved in the in the in the regional drug squads? That seems like again an odd allocation of resources. Although it may be that diversity officer is just a title and they actually don't do any work; they just go off and do the ordinary work of guards. I don't know. Yeah, that's that's what I assumed when I saw those stats. Because if if that's an actual standalone position and they're not doing any policing work, that's you know, problematic. That one thing that has really surprised me: there is a constant level of I don't know if it rises to resentment, but displeasure. A lack of being gruntled within the force about the fact that the commissioner was appointed from outside and that he came in from what was assumed people, they said that politicians seem to think, oh, well, it's just across the road. I think he himself, is he himself English? But he was, uh, I'm not sure. But he was he comes from the Peace Service in Northern Ireland. And the guards down here would say it's a completely different policing context and it's a completely different policing culture and it hasn't worked and they just don't like the the statement that they're saying that you they couldn't you couldn't find a guard to do the job. But most of all, they just think he's done a really bad job. I don't know. I kind of get the sense that they wanted someone who was unattached to the force that could come in and deal with some of the perceived issues with management, with uh, various things. Um, some more serious than others, and they made this sort of weird decision that they wanted someone who was both different and yet close enough to be vaguely similar. Yes. And I think that was quite a bad decision in the end. Oftentimes with these things, it's easier to actually bring in someone who comes from a very different position because they realize that they come from a very different position and they don't assume how things work. Whereas oftentimes in these situations, you bring in someone who has certain cultural similarities they assume that they can just do things as they were done in a different place, and it doesn't work. Yeah. So, but uh, to mention something on RTE briefly, as I said, I'm not sure how much public interest there actually is in this. Personally, I, I find the level of interest disproportionate in certain regards. The level of interest paid to Ryan Tuberty, anyway. Some of the things that have come up about, uh, shall we say, the governance of RTE. Some of it I didn't know, some of it I did know, some of it was relatively widely known, but was considered the way things were done. Some of it is, is quite interesting, and there's certainly things there that um, politicians will have time to work with. One thing I did find is that was particularly interesting, and this is on the um, Sunday Indo today as well, is that Orgy had been saying that they would bring in their auditors, that they would produce a result, that they, you know, the government could see the report, and that they would basically handle this and figure out what had happened with this large slush fund, as it was referred to, in uh, the Oireachtas. The government, according to the Sunday Indo, are going to use their powers to appoint their own auditor to do that report. At which point I think it's fair to say, Michael, that uh, trust in RTE is not at an all-time high. 
And Orti, I think, made the classic error of a company dealing with politicians, lying to politicians directly on a public uh, matter and where those lies were themselves public. Because then you make politicians kind of look like tits and they don't like that. I, I, I think it's a couple of things bundled up, though, isn't it? First of all, there's an element of this, which is, from my perspective, you know, or we've now discovered RT is a shit show. Well, wow. I'm shocked to discover there's gambling going on in this establishment. Really? You didn't know RT was a shit show? But the, what the problem is that they've, the shit show has become public and they've forced the, they've rubbed the politicians' noses. As you say, they have been less than frank, perhaps, with them. And they've provoked this response also on top of that. I think uh, our colleague and friend Sarah Ryan was saying, or maybe it was John, I can't remember, but saying, we have had years and years of RT saying, you know, yeah, absolutely. Mistakes were made, but lessons have been learned. Lessons need to be learned. We're going to address this issue. And nothing happens, or at least nothing seems to happen. And now we've reached the point where we say, okay, lads, listen, We've learned all the lessons, all the, and we've done all the learning. We can We're going to bring in. A, we're going to bring in a guy from outside because no, you're in the last chance saloon, and you just had your last drink. The thought process, Michael, of someone who knows what politicians are like, and then decides they're going to publicly lie to John McGuinness, is not the thought process of anyone who wants to keep their head firmly attached to their shoulders. Like they are going to beat them back and forth about this. They've probably ruined any risk of, uh, or <laughs> risk for me, of uh, license fee reform coming true in the next while. I have seen a couple of the usual suspects and some journalists say that people should be wary of the far right pushing to defund RTE or saying that it doesn't need more funding. Yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, you know, never let a crisis go to waste, I suppose, but I'm not sure you're going to take the public on that one. No, you're not. I mean, the, the Indo had that poll on the responsibility for the problems in RTE. And what was it? 73% said that they held RTE management at a broad level to be responsible for this. Very small numbers were, were said that Tuberty was responsible or the government, whatever. People do seem to be interested in this, by the way. I don't know. I kind of get annoyed. I might even say offended. Yes, offended. That when I click on the web, the Indo website... And I count the number of stories about the RTE. And then I think of on, on one day, and then I count the number of stories that there was in one week about the hate bi- hate speech bill or any other or other pieces of similar legislation. For example, the McAtee's decision to extend to 12 months data retention thing. The number of stories on that in comparison to on this. And I think, really? Are you just a comic at this stage? That's something I did want to mention because people might have noticed that Gript really didn't do much on that. And the reason is this. Gript is a very small outfit. So we try and not replicate anything that we think the mainstream press are going to do in the same way that we would do it. On the live stream this week, I was pointing out to people that RTE have 10 times as many staff earning over €100,000 a year as Gript has staff in total. Right. So we don't try and compete with these people because we can't. So that story comes up about McEntee going for the data retention thing, the thing with uh, whistleblowers. And we decide, well, there's only one way that that can be covered because it's a horrendous thing. Um, There may be arguments for it, but they're 
the minister did not care to give them. Mm-hmm. So we decided, well, you know, there's no point doing it because it's going to be covered by the mainstream press and, and whatever. And then you kind of get to the end of the week and you're like, did anyone actually, uh, did anyone actually mention that? There was the Times, uh, the Irish Times had a story on it and had an editorial saying that I think it was anti-democratic. But other than that, it got no attention. So we had assumed, you know, this is going to get the coverage and it didn't. So that is why Gripped didn't do much on it. And then when you get to the end of that and you're going, oh, sh- you know, shit, that should have been covered. Because we're a media outlet, everything has to be timely. Yes. And now, you know, you're not focusing on the news of today to focus on that. But it, I think it is helpful to give people an idea of the scale difference between Gripped and its competitors, which also makes, you know, some of the failures of our competitors and some of our successes deeply worrying because we are, like, minuscule compared to them. On, actually, another story, Michael, um, because the Orty thing is going to run, the, the more interesting story, I think, is the mention, I think it was in the Times, I can't actually, uh, the Irish Times, I'm not actually sure... It was a report from a whistleblower saying that somewhere in the region of 50 million euro had been given as kickbacks, as they said, to advertising agencies. Yes, that was good stuff. Lots of stuff happens involving advertisers. And for those who don't know, advertising agencies will have clients who want to advertise. Advertising agencies will generally design um, the advertisements, although not always it can be in or outhouse, and then they will recommend where those ads should be placed. So if you can convince the the um, the ad companies to go with you through you know buying them off, you can have a massive amount of influence over the ad market. And because the ad market is so lucrative, uh, particularly when you're talking about large companies with large campaigns, you can spend quite a lot of money and make back multiples of it. But there are ways that that can be done where it doesn't cross over into anything that could be considered bribery. Yeah. And there are ways that that can be done which are frowned upon, shall we say. And I'm very interested to see which ones RTE made use of. There are ethical problems, certainly, to be considered. Yeah, I mean, you know, you have things like, oh, maybe you buy someone tickets to the rugby for, you know, a couple of years and you give it to them because they've been such a good ad partner to you. You can probably explain that away as relationship building. Uh-huh. You give someone a direct cash payment, on the other hand, yeah. that's going to be a problem. So we will uh, we will find out what RTE did, and that will be quite interesting. Are you going to be in the country next week, or are you gone? I am away to Israel from the 9th. Which is... So, so will we Sunday. be here next, next week Sunday. or are you going to do something during the week? Uh, we'll either be here or we'll do something during the week. One of those two things will definitely happen, Michael. There'll be something lovely for the nice people to hear. But until then, have a nice Sunday. Enjoy yourselves and we shall be back when we are back. All the best. <laughs>